Love Talk Radio.
God, we're grateful. Because if it had not been for you, we would not be here. We opened our eyes this morning, God, because you gave us the strength to open our eyes. We were able to rise because you gave us strength and our limbs and the facilities of our body. We were able to get here, God, because you blessed us and brought us the way of safety and did not allow harm to come to us, Lord. We're grateful to again come into your presence because we know where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And as we come before you today, have your way, Lord. Let flesh be crucified that you might be glorified, that your people might be edified in the name of Jesus. For God in you is life. And that's what we seek, God, life, eternal life, God. We pray, oh God, today that you will touch every person that have come seeking you, Lord. Bind the hand of the devil, God. Rebuke the hand of the enemy, Lord. God, let your anointing that resonates in this place even now. God, let there be an outpouring on your people. We need you, God, to take us to another level in you, Lord. God, we're faced with demonic forces, God. Evil spirits have come up against us, Lord, and we need to be fortified with your power. God, we can't make it on our own strength, God. We don't have enough to stand on, Lord, but we know, God, that your joy is our strength. Fill us up on today in the name of Jesus. Somebody have come this morning burdened down, God, with the issues of life, God. Somebody, God, is in the battle of their life. Somebody's, God, fighting in their mind and in their spirit, Lord, where the devil have come in to war against them, Lord. But we thank you, God, because we know greater are you that's within us than he that is within this world, God. We know, God, that you are a deliverer, Lord, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you're no short of your promise, Lord, and you're able to deliver us, Lord. Touch us on today, Lord. We need you like never before. Fill us up with the Holy Ghost, God, and give us a refilling, Lord, that when we leave here today, Lord, we can leave with your anointing, Lord, that as we meet men and women, boys and girls, they might be converted to know who you are, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. We thank you because you are a healer. You're the God that healeth thee, and healing is in your wings, and you're able to touch our feeble bodies. You're able to save our troubled souls. And in the name of Jesus, bind every demon, Lord, every demonic force, Lord, God, that comes to keep us in the same place, Lord. We're willing, God, to surrender and say yes to your will, Lord. We're willing to turn our lives, God, over into your hands, Lord, because we come to the place, God, where we realize like never before, we need you, Jesus. More than anything we know, we need you, Jesus. While men are trying to find God, solutions to this chaotic world, God, we're looking to you, Lord, because we know for every right desire, there is an answer, and Jesus, you're that answer. There's no need for us, God, to turn hither or thither, Lord. We need but to look for you, Lord, because you're the answer, God, for our trouble.
trouble lies, Lord. Touch on the day, God. Break every yoke, oh God. Save on the day, God. Deliver on the day, God. Jesus, we need you, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We're crying out to you, Lord. We know that you're able to save our souls. We know that you're able, God, to heal our bodies, Jesus. We know that you're able, God, to turn our situations around. Jesus, no other help we know. No other help we know. No other help we know, God. You're able, Jesus, to deliver our children. You're able, Jesus, to save the unsaved husband. You're able, Jesus, to heal the cancer patient. Nothing too hard for you, Jesus. No other God we know. We know that you're able, Jesus. We know that you're able, Jesus. We say yes to your will, God. Yes to your way, Lord. Have your way, Jesus. And we'll thank you for it. And we'll give your name the praise. And we'll bless you, Lord. Yes, we thank you, Lord. And we bless your holy name. Come on, open your mouth and give the Lord some praise. on the building a long, long time ago. I turned around in a world of sin. I didn't work on the building anymore. I was lost in the heart of the wilderness. I was standing at the crossing of the road. I heard a voice speak soft and low, telling me which way to go. And he said, it's time to go back home, child. I wondered that months and years had passed. I had plenty of friends all the time. The life I lived was fast. When trouble came around me, all of my friends were gone. But I heard the same voice speaking in my ears, telling me to go back home. He said, it's time to go back home, child. Been wandering in the wilderness much too long. It's time to go back home. I finally did what the voice said. I turned and took my place. I'm working back, singing in the choir. God's amazing grace. I know Jesus, He loves me so, and this is how I know that same voice speaking to me. Telling me the way to go He said it's time to go back home, child It's time to go back home You've been wandering in the wilderness much too long It's time to go back home
church can you hear me <laughs> they told me i have to speak up loud because i have a tiny voice um well it's a pleasure to be here today to tell you a little bit about me um my name is amy i i come from india and so my parents raised us to get an education start a family and have a career and be successful and support people back home and so um that's what I did. I, I was uh, going to school and pursuing my higher studies. So when I finished high school, uh, I was about 17, I, um, I was in pursuit of my goals. And my goal was to uh, get my bachelor's, get my master's, marry the man of my dreams, have a house in Long Island, Westbury, Long Island, have 2.5 kids and a Volvo Turbo uh, car and a Civic possibly. So that was my, that was my goal. So at the age of 17, I, I met the man of my dreams, um, and he had everything going for him. He was going to be a doctor. He was just getting ready to go into med school, and uh, he came from a great family, um, and he was going to take care of me. So I started college, went to grad school, finished grad school, started my first job. Um, so seven years went by. Uh, at the end of seven years, he actually decided he had enough. Um, and in the seven years that I was with him, he was my everything. Um, whatever he expected me to do, I did. Uh, he was very controlling, and, and I obeyed. Uh, like the good little Indian girl that I am, I obeyed to everything he asked me to do. So at the end of seven years, I, I was just left, and I had, he really became everything to me. Every breath that I breathed was for him. Um, and I didn't know what to do, where to go, who to go to. Um, but I remembered when I was downtown at NYU, I came here twice um, while I was in school. And I only came twice because he only allowed me to come twice. And I remember the time that I came here, 
There was just something. As soon as you walk in the doors, there's just something about this place. It's not the beauty of the theater and the artwork. There's just, there was just something about this place. And in, in a state of desperate, desperate brokenness, I was so broken. And I was just like, wow, I remember, I remember that church in Manhattan, I'm going to go there, because going to church with my parents, saying what I was supposed to say after the priest said what he was supposed to say, wasn't doing anything for me. It wasn't helping um, the, my desperation in my heart. And I, would, I came on Tuesdays, because I still had to go to church with my parents on Sundays. So I, I dashed here from the Bronx when I was done with work, and I sat up there uh, every Tuesday for about two months, and I sat up there and I just cried. All I could do from the, they would sing, I would cry. They would preach, I would cry. All I did was cry. That's all I knew how to do. I, I just, I felt so ashamed of myself, so guilty because I, I took one too many steps thinking I was going to marry this man. And I just, I sat up there and I, I felt like I was wearing every guilty word on my body and that everybody saw it when, when I sat up there and, and I didn't know what else to do. And then one day, the choir sang a song, and I had heard the song before. I know I had. And they sang a song, and for some reason, for the first time, it was not just words that I was hearing from a song. It went from, like, my head knowledge to my heart. And the name of the song was Amazing Love. You see, I had lived seven years living for a man who did nothing for me at the end of the seven years. And I felt guilty, and I felt ashamed, and I was desperate, and my heart was so broken. And the song said that I was forgiven and that I was accepted. And then it said, it was a question in the song, Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? That someone would die for me and I had to do nothing to receive it. Nothing. I did nothing to receive anyone dying for me. And that there was a king that died for me. And that in that death, that I was free. And that I didn't have to be ashamed anymore. That was seven years ago. So interestingly enough, that day when I heard the song sitting up there, I left changed. Eight months before that, I was in India after I finished grad school, and my aunt forced me to go to this fasting prayer meeting, right? We have a fast coming up. Forced me to go to this fasting prayer meeting, and there was a lady there who prayed for me, and she prayed in tongues, and she prayed, and she looked at me after she was done praying for me, and she said, the Lord wants you to know something. And I'm like, uh-huh. And she's like, the Lord has created you to go to the nations. And I'm like, uh-huh, whatever, because I'm going to go back to New York. I'm going to marry my doctor, and I'm going to have my house and my kids and my car. So I don't know what this lady is talking about. And it literally went in one year and came out the other. That evening was the congregational prayer meeting, and the pastor who led the prayer meeting had no contact with this lady, because that lady was with us the whole day. And he came over to some of the people in the, who were at the prayer meeting, and he came over and he whispered the same exact prayer 
that she had already spoken to me. And again, I was like, whatever, because I know what I'm going to do when I get back to New York. I'm going to start my job, and I'm going to do all this. So I came back, and sure enough, the relationship ended. So seven years later, I can tell you, I just came back two weeks ago from my 12th trip. You know, I think there are some who are here that have been here again and again and just kind of strolled in here and you're not sure why you're here. Um, I can tell you today I don't have a husband. I don't have 2.5 kids. I don't have a house. I don't even know how to drive to get a car. (laughs) But I can tell you that I met someone here. I met my Savior here. And he lives inside of me. And if you're here today and you're not sure, or if you're going through something that you feel like you just, you don't even know what the next step is, every song that's sung here, every word that's spoken here, open your heart to it because he wants to speak to you just the way he spoke to me. He took one song to change my life, and it has never been the same. God says that he will redeem the time for the seven years that I wasted in that relationship these last seven years have been full of joy and excitement like you would not believe. And all the glory goes to God. Thank you. lunch outside of here actually um, so I had a graduate student who is uh, from auto uh, no from Toronto is that how you say Toronto not Toronto Toronto um, and she told me about this mystic food called poutine <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce it right and uh, there's a lot of echo back and forth can you hear me okay right so and by the gracious gracious invitation of one of the persons here in this conference we went out, walked around Parliament Hill, and took some pictures, and it took me to this uh, smoke something like poutine place, and uh, really absolutely delectable French fries on 
and on top of that, there is Korean barbecue. So I had a Korean that I'm Korean and, and uh, Canadian experience. And, and I looked at the menu. I made a mistake of looking at the menu kind of thing. It was 1,450 calories. So <laughs> I didn't have breakfast. I had lunch. I doubt I'll have dinner. So, um, so thanks again for uh, coming back to this afternoon. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last night, my, uh, my, my day job or my uh, job is I teach at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And the connection between Ottawa and Nashville is Mike Fisher. So the Ottawa Senator, Nashville Preds guy. And so I see my role as an academic missionary and I'll get to share a little bit more fully about that. So I think the title of this talk is uh, From Atheist to Christian at Yale. So I'd like to talk about in four different segments about my life journey and how God has kind of gotten a hold of me and taking me to a place that I never ever imagined would be uh, where I am standing in front of you today. Uh, if I had in my own way, I doubt I would have left South Korea. If I had in my own way, I would have become someone definitely other than a professor in a secular university in the history, religious studies, and divinity school. Um, but anyway, so four segments. One, so I kind of, they're uh, memnotic devices, I suppose. They all start with I. Incarceration, immigration, identification, and inquiry. Incarceration. So my major life events happened in six-year intervals, age 9, age 15, age 21. At age 9, when I was in grade 3, I was a happy-go-lucky boy, and I came home one night and uh, one afternoon, and my mom said, you know, um, your dad won't be home tonight. And so I said, okay, and he was, um, he was entrepreneur, but also I knew that he had some political connections and, um, and he was doing things that I wasn't always aware of. Um, next day he didn't come home, the following day he didn't come home, and my mom uh, told us that, that our dad was in prison and he was um, incarcerated under some trumped up charges. Um, and that we don't know when he was coming home. So I was never nurtured in a Christian home, uh, as far as I could tell that I didn't really have any religion. I think a lot of Westerners assume that if you're from Korea or Asia, particularly Korea, you must be either Confucian or Buddhist. There are, I mean, preponderant number of people like that, but then there are also people who are non-religious, and I think ours was one of them. Occasionally we would have, you know, church attendance and things of that, so they're more like a calendrical piety rather than anything that was meaningful and substantial. So, um, but, so think about when you were nine, and I saw that there was one young lady who was nine years old, and so I was that young lady's age when my father was thrown into prison. And one thing that happened to me, and I don't, because nobody ever really told me about God, no one really kind of explicitly taught me about justice per se. I mean, we were learning civics and ethics and such. But I remember this very distinct moment saying to God, God, if you're around, please send my dad home. And I don't know, it was some kind of extemporaneous prayer or something like that. No one really taught me anything about prayer, but just 
And that was kind of pleading or plea bargaining. And then that went on for a while. And then uh, at the end of the particular segment in my life, I was basically, figuratively speaking, shaking my fist at God and saying, you can't be real. You cannot possibly exist because you threw my dad into prison and threw away the key. So to make a long story short, my father was released from prison three years later. So we were, um, I was in grade six. And the next three years are uh, pretty much infernal, very hellish. So the Korean government made it very difficult for us to live in Korea. So although we didn't have the sort of a, 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 a um, asylum status, but we ended up in uh, the United States and um, I left Korea uh, thinking that, okay, this is a country, though it's my putative motherland, but it has done nothing less than just nearly destroy my life. So I was quite excited about coming to America at age 15. So incarceration and immigration. So coming to America, I had lots of expectations of the good life that will be awaiting me when I came to the States. Um, and as a story would, uh, as, as fate would have it or providence would have it, we ended up uh, at least for the first seven days of our stay in America in Los Angeles. My uncle um, had lived out in Southern California and um, he took us to Disneyland and um, Magic Mountain, is that what it's called? And then um, with SeaWorld and things like that, Queen Elizabeth, you know, that big kind of uh, uh, um, ship. And so everything about my first seven days of stay was wonderful. Um, and that seemed to be a place where you didn't have to speak English much. And then we ended up in Philadelphia where my aunt, my mom's older sister, had lived. And uh, my uncle had determined that I actually would be better off. I was a ninth grader, year grade nine, that I would be better off going to an ESL program. But this particular ESL, ESL program was actually held in the same place as a local elementary school. And in grade nine, I was exactly this height. And I was kind of, I was 15, and, and I was deeply mortified about just going to school with at an elementary school, right? I mean, because it was just a period of trying to figure out who the heck I was, right? I mean, I was kind of, you're, you're beginning to discover your own kind of sexuality. You discover girls and guys, and, but, you know, you discover a lot of things about yourself and desires, misdirected, rightly kind of born, and so on and so forth. And so my high school years were absolutely miserable. It was terrible. And we were in a sort of, there weren't that many Koreans, but my parents decided to go to church because so often, as you perhaps know, some immigrants, uh, when they come, they may not have been religious before, but they find the sort of local ethnic uh, enclave. And then in oftentimes religious organizations, whether mosques or temples or churches, play that role of kind of helping you to be much more integrated. So my parents have started to go to to church. I knew nothing about the church. I thought I'll give it a go. So Friday nights, I would have these kind of meetings, uh, Friday night Bible studies, and the youth pastor basically called it triple B, BBB, right? So we had a Bible study, and then we'll go to Burger King, and then we'll go bowling. And so... (laughs) And, you know, it's wonderful if done rightly, but um, I tend to be a very outgoing guy, but then something happened to my personality when I came to America. Like, I was really happy-go-lucky guy, I was athletic, and I was, uh, if I can just, yeah, I mean, I, I, people liked me, I liked them, and there was, you know, I never really felt like 
skeptical about my own ability to relate with people or befriend others. But coming to America basically just, it just was traumatic experience. But what was really interesting or more traumatic yet was by going to church, I felt the sense of alienation even more so. So the Bible study, you know, okay, no one sits with you in a Bible study, that's okay. And that's all right. I mean, it's, it's not ideal. And some of you are in youth ministry. Please listen up. Because then we go to Burger King, and, and I don't know what it was. I mean, it was just so I thought like there are other Korean kids, so they would at least talk to me. But they're mostly second-generation Korean-Americans, so they didn't speak much Korean. And I wasn't wearing the right clothes. I certainly didn't speak the language. I didn't have the right haircut. I didn't play the right sport, whatever. So I wasn't part of the cool crowd. I was part of the loser crowd, right? So hardly anyone was sitting with me at Burger King. But the worst of all experience, and this is before Robert Putnam wrote this book called Bowling Alone, was to bowl alone. <laughs> and one good thing was you have the whole alley. I mean, sometimes people join you, but then a lot of times I'll find myself bowling alone. And I was always prayed that it would be an even number of kids so that somebody will join me. But sometimes when we had odd number of kids, I'll be bowling by myself. And one, one thing I could never figure out, why wouldn't this... Why the, pardon my French, why the hell wouldn't a youth pastor actually come over and bowl with me occasionally? I, would, I find myself bowling alone a lot. Right? And this is what I'm getting at. You see, a lot of times we get so heady, and I'll tell you about my own life. I became a very heady person. I did all the right degrees and went to all the right schools, and I teach all the right, right, right places. But more often than not, people's problems with Christianity has something to do with the heady issues and intellectual hang-ups and so on, but more often than not, it's the stories of hurt, it's the stories of rejection, stories of people saying, we're supposed to embody the gospel in a more compelling and endearing way. They end up doing the very opposite. So think about the sense of alienation and rejection you would feel if you go to a triple B thing, Bible study, Burger King, and bowling, and you are basically alone the whole time. So by that time, I was accepted to Yale University, and we were driving up from Wilmington, Delaware, to New Haven, Connecticut. And my mom had become sort of very excited as a Christian, so she read the entire book of Proverbs to me. She said, you know, I want you to gain the Solomonic wisdom and you know, I hope you become a really, and you're going to one of the nation's finest universities. I hope you gain that sense of wisdom and from God. Was I listening? Absolutely not. I was so excited about two things. One, that I was getting the heck away from the church. That that youth group experience really was absolutely the last thing I wanted from the church. And until I graduated, I really didn't have any, any friends. And well, there was one guy that I kind of got to be friends with, because the one that I would, after you know, the bowling, and he and I would go and smoke cigarettes and have a couple of beers. That became my friend. I mean, that was the only friend I had. I mean, so think about the irony of what was happening, right? The place that you're supposed to find meaningful friendship in Jesus. I, I, I don't know about the culture of Canadian Christianity, but in American Christianity, if you're smoking and drinking after your youth group, you're not usually looked upon as a paragon of Christian virtue, are you? <laughs> so that was me. I go to university, and I was so excited I was leaving, and then so excited that I was going to plunge headlong into this intellectual pursuit of the good life and this great education. So my mom read the entire book of Proverbs, and my dad, he's a kind of laconic man, he doesn't say much, and maybe the political prisoner experience had kind of made him a lot more reserved. He didn't say anything the whole drive, and he's ready to drop me off, and then he said to me, son, I just have a few words to say to you. And I said, okay, and he goes, you're at university, you're, you're a man now, and he says, you can do whatever you want. 
please don't do drugs. <laughs> Think about two very, very contrastive counsel. Mom is praying that I'll read, become like Solomon or you know, gain a heart of wisdom. My dad says, follow any kind of hedonistic desire you want. Just don't do drugs, okay? <laughs> because he's, he thought like you're coming of age. You're now coming to be in university, and I think in Korea much more so. When you go to university, you're, you're supposed to take a lot more ownership of your life and a lot of things that you do, and this is what he thought was the best kind of advice he could offer me. So I guess whose counsel I took more seriously, mom or dad. I'm a lot closer to my mom, but at that point in my life, I took my fatherly counsel much more seriously. Furthermore, Yale, as, as was and as is, uh, one of the best universities in the world, and they have some of the best professors. And one of the requirements for all Yaleys is that you take some humanities classes. And so I was talking to some of my friends, and I played baseball when I was in college so, and, and throughout high school, so one thing that helped my acclimation to life in America was playing baseball. So I played baseball in Korea, played baseball in high school, played baseball in college, and that really helped me to kind of create my sense of selfhood that was kind of... Uh, you know, in contradistinction to some of my other friends. So my church friends, they were cool and they drove nice cars and they spoke English, but, and they looked down on me and I kind of looked down on them like, oh, but you don't really play sports. And that's but when I got to college, I was having a great time. And some of these professors were, you know, people from, uh, who took their degrees from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Cambridge, Oxford, you know, whatever, right? And they, and there is one particular New Testament professor um, who basically said, you know what, the Bible is a wonderful book, uh, but it's really not the kind of truth that you want to kind of hang your life on. And he would talk about the errors and manuscript issues. And, and what do I know? I was an 18-year-old guy who was just taking this religious studies class as a second semester freshman and bought that hook, line, and sinker. Why? Two things, I think, as I look back. One, there was an, uh, an ostensible, real presence of authority. The professor was gray hair, kind of old, kind of guy with a tweed jacket and had a kind of right cadence of speech and had the right pedigree. And he was, after all, teaching at one of the ma- you know, major vaunted universities. And he was pontificating, saying that the Bible is a helpful cultural document. But you know, if you really know the truth, that actually, you know, that's not true. But furthermore, there was also the desire of the heart for me to want to walk away from anything that the Bible had to say. Two things about that. One, because of my experience with some of my youth group friends or friends in scarecrows or alleged friends or people that I share space with for every Friday night or Sunday. I didn't like them. They certainly didn't like me. If this is a Christianity, so I wanted I had my personal agenda to reject Christianity or walk away from it. And also, there was a thing called the lifestyle choices that I was pursuing that if I understood anything about Christianity that I shouldn't be doing. I don't know about you, but at least for me at that time in my life, people were just, you know, objects of conquest, right? I, life was about conquest. I got to go get a degree, so get something, get a job, get, get hammered, or get, do, do the, get, get this, get this, get that. So it was a pathway toward conquest. But somehow I, I understood as I was, uh, you know, going to church. Uh, so my mom said, you know what, you don't have to do whatever. But she always, remember this is a day, I was a freshman in 1986. This is the days without and before Blackberry or Snapchat or it was rotary phones. You remember those rotary phones? And so I would talk to my mom once a week. She never asked me, 
like how I was doing in school. She would ask me, did you go to church? And for whatever reason, because my mom had a very difficult kind of marriage and there was a lot of issues of um, domestic, uh, you know, whatever. And so I didn't, I loathe my dad, love my mom. And I hated Christianity. Yet, because my mom would ask me, did you go to church? I decided, hungover that I was, Sunday morning, and I'm not exaggerating, like severely hungover, I would go to the dining, room, dining hall, grab some food, and hop on the shuttle bus. They would take me to a Korean church in New Haven. There are a couple of reasons that I went. One, because of my mom. Two, that's the only place you could get Korean food. <laughs> I would go there. I remember this one story. I don't know how odd this thing was, but like, so I go, go to this church, and the pastor, college pastor, was preaching. And I don't know how, what possessed him to do it, but he was doing some degree in Old Testament at Yale. But he was preaching from, guess what book in the Old Testament? Song of Songs. <laughs> do you know anything about Song of Songs? He was offering the sort of Bernadine kind of allegorical interpretation, but I made a terrible mistake of actually reading the text. I was like, holy crap, this is the Bible? And, and imagine, if your first entree point to sacred scripture is a woman's breast, I was like, this is a great book. I was, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the, the holy Bible. I, took, I turned over, it says holy Bible, and I went back to the Song of Songs, saying, what about this book is holy? I don't understand. So in college, I was genuinely a confused guy. Hedonistic to the core, careerist to the core, and I just was really, and I was excited about being there, I was excited about being a baseball player, I was excited about studying all of these things, so I, I, I became an econ major, did well, loved life, and life was going just steadily on course, until something happened. My sister um, decided to uh, get engaged to a guy who was in a seminary, and I was like, what the, <laughs> what I mean, like, nothing could be odder to me than that. Like, why would you ever want to marry somebody who's going into Christian ministry? Mind you, I was going to church every Sunday, and no, not every two Sundays, three It wasn't like an every Sunday thing, but on, on, on average, I would go at least twice a month to get Korean food, and because of my loving mother who would always ask me, did you go to church? And I don't know what it is, but I could not lie to my mom. I mean, all I had to do was, if I had a kind of as, you know, heart that was seared as with hot iron, I could have just said, yeah, I went to church. No, I couldn't do that to her. It was just that mom on the other line was asking me, did you go to church? So to, to, to satisfy her, I would say, yeah, and I did go to church. And I remember so many times I'd be falling asleep and I'd wake up and then, and I would always, so when I think about when I was in ministry for a little while, I, I, I think back on those days, and I did preach a few sermons on the Song of Songs to see what kind of response I would get from the audience. But, you know, so Yale was a very exciting time period. My sister was getting engaged, and one of the things that my mom asked me to do, and if my dad had asked me, if my sister had asked me, I wouldn't have done it. But my mom, my mom said, you know what? Could you go to this retreat that your brother-in-law to be is going to be speaking at? I said, what is that? I, I, I don't want to go to retreat. And because it's Christmas break, I was going to have a great time with some of my friends, not my church friends, but my other friends. And, you know, and mom said, you know, this is going to be held in the Poconos. And, you know, I think he, along with other people, are uh, organizing this college retreat. I think you would. And she said, she said, you don't have to go because of Jesus. She said, but do it for me and for the family. 
Your sister is about to marry a pastor, and what, what would, how bad it would look for our family if none of your sister's siblings actually believed in Jesus? So it had very little to do with saving faith as in F-A-I-T-H, but it had everything to do with saving faith of the family, F-A-C-E. So I, I went to the retreat regretting, like, what am I doing here? And everything about the retreat was terrible. <laughs> the food was bad, like the kind of people that were there, I was like, I don't want to hang out. But then I was feigning to be interested because my brother-in-law was always asking me, is everything okay? I said, yeah, yeah, right. Secretly, I didn't like him. And I was like, why is my sister marrying this loser guy? And, and he said he was a medical doctor, but he decided God called him to the ministry. And I talked to him, I was like, why would you do that? He's like, God called me. And I remember telling him with this one, one word answer, so? Like, he said, God called me. And I said, so? And he looked at me, and, he was, he's, and he's still married to my sister, and he's a great, great guy. And last evening of the retreat, and I, I, I was so ready to go home. I was like, yeah, this is it. Like, you know, everything. Because I remember I did my duty, right? Just I had to show up to the retreat. Mom said, you don't have to do anything. Just go stay for the whole time. I mean, kind of minimal requirement, right? So I'm going there. And then the last night of the retreat, and I wish, I mean, I'm not making this up. And just the whole thing sucked. And the praise team was up here. And they weren't like these two bands that were up here last night and today, like really great. They were kind of a group of college, you know, pastors and seminarians, um, mostly from the seminary that I ended up going to later on. But anyway, they were playing this song, and I never heard the song before. I had heard of Augustine because of, you know, Western Civ, but I didn't really know about Augustine's conversion narrative. So this is what happened. They're singing this song. I later on found out it was written by and was uh, Keith Green. And I later on found out it's from 1 Samuel. It's a song that um, some of the older people here probably remember or recognize the song, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice. I don't need your money, I want your life. Bam! You know what happened? I'm sitting in the back row. Nothing was good about this retreat. Nothing about the, the musical aesthetics was pleasing to me. I never heard this song before. And guess what happened? I began to sob. Something about that song, to obey is better than sacrifice, I don't need your money, I want your life, just spoke into my soul. And I just began bawling. Because a week before the retreat, I told my sister something that, that hurt her, but it was sincere coming from me. I said, you know, I don't know what you're doing marrying this loser guy, but it's your life. You're going to med school. And you're going to be, a, but you're going to be married to this poor pastor. I'm an econ major at Yale. I'll make a lot of money after I'm done. I'm going to give you a lot of money to help your ministry. Right? So that was just a week before. And, and imagine, try to put yourself in that situation. You're not introduced to Christianity properly, and you hear this song that was terrible, but the words are such that to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't need your money. I want your life. And guess what? I had heard it as if it was God. Remember, it was, I don't need your money. I want your life. I didn't hear it as if the praise team member was just speaking to me. I heard it as if it was God speaking to me and says, I don't need your money. I want your life. And from age nine until that moment, I never cried. I never cried. Because my dad, if he, doesn't, he hadn't taught me a lot, he did teach me, real men don't cry. So I said, oh, yes, sir, I will not cry. But at that moment in my life, I just kind of, it just, all the defenses that I built up just broke down. 
I didn't, and I couldn't tell you, so that's why, I couldn't tell you what happened. It wasn't by, so I'm still, I'm a Calvinist, but it wasn't by reading John Calvin. It wasn't by reading anything of that sort of apologetic literature. It was by listening to a song that I hadn't heard before. And it was, I, and I still remember that experience was what really kind of turned me on to the gospel. I, I, among other things one could say, it was that experience that really basically converted me, if you want to use the language conversion. It wasn't, so it might have been the cumulative, no, I think it was definitively that song and those words that I heard as God was addressing me. And then as I was crying, and I actually began to like, like cry, like I began to cry, and I don't, you know, and then my brother-in-law came over, like rushed over, like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm okay. And I just like hugged him and said, I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry because I hated you and I'm sorry that I, and... And I feel bad, like if, you, if, I, if my brother-in-law said to me, I would like punch him in the face, like, what'd you say? But he's like, it's okay, man, it's okay. And, and, and I told him, you know, I think it's, it's God speaking to me. And I didn't have the right language. And, and, and I was done. And then, and then I remember that night, at the end of the night, I cried so much, my eyes were like all sore. I'm like, I don't just, I was a mess. And I'm going to sleep that night, and two kind of prominent emotions were one of joy and the other of confusion. So if some of you are looking into Christianity, or some of you are like, some of you had, my experience of conversion was joy and confusion. I was like excited that I thank God is, because all my life since age nine was trying to get to the next stage, trying to get to the next stage, trying to get to the next stage, because the end will be better than where I am now. That's what I was told, right? And that's, and that's how I was running through and jumping through all these hoops. And basically what I came to understand was God was saying, you know, you belong to me. And, and I guess it's maybe conjecture, but I began to think that it's okay. There's a sense of joy and security. It's almost as if God was saying, I got you. You don't have to try anymore. But then I was confused because the question was, now what? Like, now what? Because... If my friends, and I'll share, if I told, my worry was, okay, I'm going to go back to university in a week, and we're going to talk about our winter, like, exploits, and the highlight of my winter, the highlight of my life thus far, was becoming a Christian. And rather than getting excited, I was deeply worried. So I took the train from Wilmington, Delaware to New Haven, Connecticut, got off the train, took the cab, and went back to my dorm room, and... And just to give you a sense of what my dorm room was like, we had seven guys living together, and we had what is called a kegerator. You know what a kegerator is? A refrigerator with a beer tap attached, and you have a keg in the refrigerator all the time. Just a kind of very slim snapshot of what my life was. Among other things, we were like, we love beer, and so just that's what we were. And we're always playing cards or backgammon, and we had, the, we all came back and that night, and we got some pizza and hanging out drinking beer, and then we're all talking about what happened during the winter break. And there are seven of us, but there are several other guys joined in, so there were about 12 of us or so, maybe 13, and we're all going around talking about, yeah, I did this, I did that, and I got whatever, and, you know, talking about what happened in the, you know, during, during the winter, winter break. Came time for me, and I was kind of, you know, just going circling, I was like, I was trying to figure out, okay, Lord, and I was actually praying, Lord, what should I say? I was excited. I wanted to tell my friends about what happened, but I was worried that they wouldn't believe me. I was worried that, like, you? No, you can't be a Christian. 
Because to be honest with you, when I went to church, I didn't tell my friends, like, because I, you know, I would go to get Korean food or because my mom was asking. You know, they didn't really ask, where would you go? I would often say, like, I went to study in the library, something like that. But now I have to really face the truth. And, okay, so guys are, you know, getting slightly inebriated, but they're all having a great time. And it came time for me, so, hey, so they, you know, my last name being Lim, they, they always call me Lim. It's like, Lim, what'd you do? I said, you know, I had a pretty good break, you know, and then I kind of made up, I mean, not made up, I said something, and then I said, you know, and, and, and another thing is, uh, I became a Christian. <laughs> and it's almost like, you know, the, the record is playing, and it right, stops the music, stops, it's like, what, what'd you say? And one, one of my friends, uh, Mark, turned to me, and said, what the, did you say? I said, I said, what I said was, I became a Christian. And they all kind of stared at me. And then one guy said to me, yeah, but you know, you do everything kind of extreme anyway, so it'll just, but it'll be a just passing phase. And, and, I, and I remember saying, yeah, maybe, but, but I think it's kind of different. And they didn't want to hear it, and which is understandable response. I mean, because we're all having a good time, and you don't want, you don't want to have some Christian like, yeah, I became a Christian. And like, well, how are you going to respond to it? Let's all bow our heads and pray. I mean, it's not going to be the likely response. So they're like, okay, whatever. Just don't. And, and one guy said to me, just make sure do everything in moderation. Don't go like overboard. The irony is that every one of my friends go overboard every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. It's like, what do you mean don't go overboard? I mean, that's what you and I do. That's our MO. But religion, don't go overboard now, please. Second semester junior year was my loneliest time. People will be parting it up because I, I, had, to call, I had to call it cold turkey because my lifestyle was like, this is not compatible with. I'm not against people drinking as Christians, not at all. But like the way that I was imbibing was definitely not the way that it would honor God. And the kind of thoughts and behaviors and beliefs that I would have while drinking after, you know, that's not good. And I began to read the Bible. And, and, I, and this is just my, because it never happened before, it never happened since. That one semester, I read the Bibles. Uh, my brother-in-law gave me NIV, this NIV student Bible. I devoured that thing. I read that Bible cover to cover seven times in one semester. You know why? Because I was so lonely. <laughs> I was like, I want to know this God. I, and I want to know about this God, and I just want to know. And so I read the Bible, and okay, I read the Song of Songs, but then I, as I read through the Old Testament, weirder stories are popping up, you know, talking donkey, and I was like, how do we understand this and go through the, you know, and go through the Gospel of, you know, Matthew, and then like the resurrection story was, that was believable, but then, you know, and I think in the Matthew's version where like dead people walk around, and, and my question was like, what happened to them? Did they stay alive or did they experience a second death? I don't know, but a lot of questions arose for me. So seven times reading the Bible answered a lot of I mean, it's just kind of a seeping into my being. Because if you read any book seven times, you're going to start to kind of believe. And, and, then, and I'm not saying there's some kind of, you know, whatever induced kind of a, 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 a mass hysteria or anything like that. But I, I began to believe in the person behind the Bible. I said, okay, you must be real. But I had a lot of questions, like, but, but, you know, like, so what did I do? I, I was about to finish with my econ major, so I, I did philosophy as my second major, philosophy of religion in particular. And one of the courses that I took then that really rocked my world was a course called Divine Sovereignty and Human Self-Assertion as part of religious studies. And I think one of the reasons why I'm doing what I'm doing, being 
kind of, in some ways, kind of lonely as an evangelical scholar teaching at a secular university is because there weren't that many Christian professors who are what I would call out Christians who say, okay, I'm a Christian, you can ask me questions. I think there were Christian professors at Yale, as there are many other universities like the University of Ottawa and um, you know, other places, but they may not feel comfortable coming out of the closet or whatever. And I remember doing, uh, taking that class and reading this one book. I know the, the, his name was mentioned earlier this morning, Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he wrote this book called Fear and Trembling. It's the story of the Akadah, right? It's the story of Abraham being called to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. And again, that book by Kierkegaard just rocked my world. I was like, whoa, and I wrote my senior thesis on that book. And I recently, after I'm class of 90, so was, I found that paper, that was about 40-page paper, and I, I was like, oh, and it was one of my files. And I was like, because remember that's done before, like floppy discs and all that, it was hard. So I found the hard copy, and I was like, wow, that's what I used to think about the Lord. And, and I was like, I can't believe I got this good or great. It was not that great, but nevertheless... So I think loving God with my mind was one of the new MOs that I began to have. So I began, because God answered a lot of questions in my heart, that I began to understand a little bit better about the Odyssey, although why my dad was incarcerated and why our family had to suffer that shame and derision and move from two-story home to my mom's friend's basement with no bathroom, I still didn't quite understand all those theoretical issues. But what began to emerge from me was the answer in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think the more I think about God in Christ, the more I get shivers. Because, I mean, I, I always like, when I think about the immensity of our universe and cosmos, I think of those songs by Pink Floyd, Is There Anybody Out There? Is there anybody out there? And that's a haunting question that could leave you even more vulnerable and lonely. Because in that immensity of our universe, is there anybody there? So for me to answer that particular question has to be, for me, grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then I began to have some comfort. So, but by the time I was done with my university career, um, I knew that Jesus was my Lord and my God. And I knew that my life was turned around, lonely though I was, confused though I was. So if somebody were to say, if you become a Christian, your loneliness will go away and you'll have clarity. Uh, for some it's true, I think. Me, that wasn't true. I was even lonelier because the guys that I used to hang around with and girls I used to hang around, they... Basically, because we weren't doing the same thing. I wasn't doing the same. And so I left the university, went down to New York City, took a job, and, uh, and did corporate finance. And I was starting to wax and wane in my Christian commitment, and my sister had gotten in contact with one of her friends who was serving at this Korean Presbyterian church in Flushing. And she signed me up as a, uh, a youth group teacher. She said, knowing you, you go to the city of New York, you're gonna, your old habits will come out, you're going to party, you're going to go clubbing, you're going to drink, you're going to do this and that, and you're going to walk away from Jesus. I know you. So I never had an opportunity. I just never, so I got a, a, and you know one thing that happened was in this particular church, there are a lot of kids about 15, 16, I came to America when I was 15, 16. They were often in trouble with the law. I still remember this one guy. I mean, I don't know why he did it. I think he told me later on that he did it to impress girls. He actually brought a gun to church. He was part of this kind of Chinatown gang. And, 
And he's like, hey, Mr. Ryan, come here. And he goes, hey, Paul, come here. I want to show you something. I said, what is that? And he goes, hey, and then he goes, it's a gun. I remember being so shocked. I was like, what the, what are you doing? And, and it's being involved with, because they somehow like me. I was not dating anybody. I had a pretty good income. So a lot of these guys would come out and we'll go to like Smith and Walensky or some like nice steakhouses. And I would, they would, I think they kind of took advantage of me, but it's okay. But I was kind of, I need <laughs> So I, I hung out with these guys, but then I realized, and this is what the youth pastor said, he's a very conservative Presbyterian man, and he said, you know what, Mr. Lim, I know you have, a lot, you have good, good income, but I also know that you went to Yale and studied philosophy and religion, so I don't really trust you, so don't teach them the Bible, just play with them. So I was a guy who has some money and who has some athletic ability, he goes, I don't really trust your theology, so I want you to just go play with them, buy them lunch and dinner, but that will be a role that is really needed in our church right now. I said, okay, I'll be that guy. <laughs> so one thing that happened was, while I studied philosophy of religion, but that didn't really answer a lot of the Bible questions that I had, though I read the Bible seven times or eight or nine times since, I still had a lot of questions. And I was about to go to law school, but I remember telling my parents, because I had this desire, and I remember talking to my brother-in-law, and that was a real shock to everybody. Because when I told my brother-in-law that I actually was thinking about going to seminary to study the Bible, just for a little bit, and afterward I'll go to law, law school, my brother-in-law was really shocked. He's like, what, you want to study? I said, yeah, I just, just for a little bit. I mean, I'm not, and I remember telling him, I'm not going to be a pastor like you, but, you know, better than that. And, but I just want to go study the Bible a little bit. And so I did. I went to a seminary to study the Bible, and I really was fully intent on going to law school afterward and go be a corporate lawyer, because as an immigrant family, my parents said, you know, you got to make a lot of money and, you know, uh, be comfortable and, you know, live in Long Island and, you know, have a Beamer and have a couple of kids and a couple of dogs and a cat, and your life is great. You're, you made it in, in America. And I remember my dad saying to me, and he's kind of extreme guy, he's like, you know, like, you know those, like, like blood promise? He's like, swear with your blood that you're going to go to law school. I said, what? I'm not going to do that. Like, like, are you serious about that? Because he, he goes, I know you do everything in extreme. I said, well, look who's speaking here. Like, you want me to... Like, do like, and he says, it doesn't hurt that much. Just do it. I said, okay. So I signed with my... Like I said, I'm going to go to law school. And my dad's like, okay, you better do that. Now go to seminary. God got a hold of me. More questions about the Bible arose and theology, but it wasn't a question, again, they were not defeater kind of questions. I was like, I want to know more, I want to know more. And next thing I knew, my professors at seminary, at biblical seminary, they were saying, you know, I, we, we think that you really have the sort of intellectual curiosity and the right accoutrements that we think you should go study and get your PhD and come back and teach with us. And I never thought about that. And I remember telling my dad, you know, I think I'm, and he was like, yeah, when I knew that, when I heard that you're going to seminary, I knew that you were lost forever. Because <laughs> as far as he was concerned, I was a lost cause. You know, he, he thought I was doing everything in, in extreme. For him, Christianity is opiate of the masses. My mom's a devoted Christian, my dad is not. And so, and so to fast forward a little bit, because I have uh, not a lot of time as opposed to last night when I had plenty of time. So the experience of, you know, that, that seminary, so incarceration, immigration, and identification, that I, there is somebody who would identify with me. And then I went to law, uh, uh, not law school, but grad school, and when I was finishing up, I, uh, I was uh, at, at Cambridge in 2001. Um, I thought we were going to go to India, and the Lord closed that door, um, and the 
door was opened up at a school that I and he heard of, heard of and had a lot of respect for Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in Boston. So I began my kind of journey there, and that is the sort of an inquiry. For me, I think um, I have a lot of questions about the Christian faith. But it's not the sort of questions that I would be like, yeah, I don't believe this anymore. I, I come to realize, at least at Vanderbilt where I teach, a lot of students were basically, I a lot of them come from the South, and they have questions about the Bible or Jesus or Christianity, and oftentimes youth pastor will, will, will say things like, don't ask those questions. They're ultimately unhelpful or something to that effect. And I felt like, you know, I was thankfully surrounded by people who didn't say, don't ask those questions. They're like, okay, let's think about it together. And one of the, one of the persons was my brother-in-law, who's an Old Testament professor, um, and in, in Korea now, and um, this is before he and his, uh, my sister left to go to South Africa for, their, for his PhD at Stellenbosch, and he said, you know what, Paul, I, I know you have a lot of questions, and they're, they're great, and he said, my prayer for you is that you'll be surrounded by people who will not say your questions are stupid. And guess what? I mean, I became a professor. I can ask all kinds of questions, and I get paid a pretty good amount of money to raise these questions about the Christian faith. And students would say, you know, Dr. Lim, I also had the same question. I said, that's right. Let's think about that together. And I often say, you know what? My journey as an academic, my, my courses are never meant as a uh, uh, um, faith-buster def- uh, faith courses. So I teach about history of Christianity and teach about, uh, currently I'm teaching a course on human rights and human trafficking and remaking of a global Christianity. And courses like that, they're not meant as a faith buster course, nor as a faith builder course necessarily. I, as a historian, want to see this phenomenon since late Middle Ages to about early Enlightenment period critically and, um, and do the best you can. And I always say, look, I'm a Christian. That means all that I do and all that I am is this kind of mode of fides corans intellectum, faith-seeking understanding. I believe that God is. I believe that God exists. And we're trying to figure out the ways of God in history. And so I think for me in my life journey, it's been great. It's just the types of inquiry that I have, and I still have a lot of questions. I, I think I'm sort of, you know, I'm really grateful to the Lord that I found my calling accidentally. Right, because I so my wife and I and our son lived with a, a freshman for seven years at Vanderbilt. We started this kind of residential college system, and so all these 18-year-old kids come to Vanderbilt and saying, "I want to do this and I want to be that." And I have to say, you know, chillax. You don't have to have everything figured out. Like, why? I mean, because I told him, look, it wasn't until I was like 25 that I kind of figured out this may be what I want to do with my life. And so often I think we're living with so much pressure. So much pressure to make something in the world or be, be counted for something bigger than yourself. And for Christians, I think the pressure is even greater for those of you who are Christians because you feel like I gotta, I'm serving this mighty Lord and I want to make a difference in the, world, in, in the kingdom of God. But I think as a Reformed person, as a Calvinist, you know what, what I come to realize is that it's really not up to you. God's got it covered and I regard it as a pure privilege to be playing for the team. I mean, what's the best NHL team right now? Ottawa? Okay, Ottawa Senators. How many of you played hockey before? I play hockey. Okay. Would you regard it as a real privilege if the Ottawa Senators said, can you be a starting, like, defenseman? Yes. Oh, come on. What's that? Okay, Toronto, what, Maple Leafs, is that right? Okay. If Toronto Maple Leafs called you, can you be our starting defenseman? Would you not be excited? 
Absolutely. And you know what? The way that I see it is, you know what? What I do, how I see my identity is, you know, God is the celestial, the, the best coach ever of hockey or whatever sport you like. And God has called me, would you like to play for my team? I know I don't have what it takes to be on that team. I don't. Yet God has called me, and you're not, not only going to be on the team, you're going to be starting. You're going to be starting, and I will never criticize you, I'll never make fun of you, I'll never ridicule you, but you got it, brother. And no consequences are going to be asked. You do your best, I got you covered. You know what? To me, that is the joy of being a follower of Jesus, being discovered by God. Coming to realize, you know, you don't have to jump through so many more hoops to be more acceptable to me or to be more righteous. No, 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 no. I think, and for me, I'm studying a lot, and I've, that's, that's been my, my life's goal as an academic and all that, right? I mean, win a book, book prize and major fellowships. All of those things don't mean jack squat. Because in the end, it is this awesome knowledge of knowing Jesus. Let me finish this illustration. So I was uh, invited to give a talk at, at, at London University, and, and uh, I was doing some research. My field of expertise is 17th century England. So I was doing some archival work at the British Library, and if you ever, been to the, if you ever go to London, stop by the British Library. And you don't have to go in, but you just go in, walk up the steps, and you will see this huge glass tower of stacks. If you're like five stories high of stacks of old manuscripts and medieval books and so on, it's like this tall and this thick, and there's a tower of them. And I just stood there, and I'm thinking like, wow. You know, I had written a few, you know, a couple of books and edited, a, you know, one and all that. Like, when looking at this thing, and I was just like completely pygmied by the immensity of human knowledge and acquisition localized only in this small library, the British Library, but think about my own arrogance of thinking that I, I knew what I was talking about. You see, God is much grander than that, much deeper than that, and yet He calls you, you belong to me, and I want to hang out with you. In that journey of fellowship and discipleship, may you find true joy that can only come from this God of love and truth and mercy. Let's pray together, if that's okay. Lord, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you are the God of our stories, that you are the God of history. Lord, I want to encourage my brothers and sisters who are gathered here who have been found by you. But I also want to pray especially for those who are outside looking in through their stories of hurt, through their stories of betrayal or rejection or loneliness within the church that they may have felt like, I don't want to be a part of this. Or maybe they have a lot of questions about uh, Christian men and women behaving badly or the questions of evil in the world starting within our own hearts. God, I pray that you will help all of us to find the truth in you because you will be the kind of God who will say, go ahead, ask me more questions. Having those questions can never be defeaters for you to walk away from me. Help us to experience you more deeply and more really in our earthly sojourn. We thank you, God. In your name we prayed. Amen. Thank you very much.
Hey guys, welcome to Capturing Christianity. I am Cameron Bertuzzi, and I am here today with Dr. Cy Gart. Welcome to the show. I mean, you've been on the channel before. but I have. Yeah, yeah so here you're today with us in person, and I'm right. so excited to meet you. Wish I could see your wife, but I'm sure that she's here. She's here <laughs> in spirit, isn't she? 
I miss her too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so today we're talking about your journey from atheism all the way to Christianity. Right. And there's a whole lot that's happened in between, you know, back when you were an atheist and now that you're a Christian. We'll talk about all the steps that kind of led there, some of the science that, because that, you, your background is in, what is it, micro, not biochemistry. Micro, biochemistry. And so your, your, yeah, your background as a scientist, but that's actually what led you to em, embrace God's existence and then eventually to, to become a Christian. Right. So how, let's start at the, the very beginning. Tell me about your upbringing. I know we've talked about this on the channel before, but let's uh, kind of go through it a little bit more in, uh, in some more detail. Sure. Well, yeah, I won't go into too much because, as you said, we, we have covered it and it's, uh, it's in my book, so you know, people can find it. Uh, but I, I grew up in a, in a basically uh, in a family three generations of atheists. Uh, they were not only atheists, they were very left-wing. My parents were members of the American Communist Party in the 1930s, which is rare. <laughs> and so uh, their atheism was very strong, very militant, uh, and that's what I grew up with. I, I uh, assumed that there was, could not be any such thing as God or possible for there to be a god totally materialistic my father was a chemist scientist so you know i that was the worldview i grew up in uh and 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 also the same worldview i had when i went to college uh where i started studying chemistry <laughs> chip off the old block and um you know when you're a chemistry major you also have to learn some physics so i was learning things about quantum mechanics and things in physics that Seemed a little strange to me, but I didn't really worry about it too much. And then eventually I decided I really wanted to study life. And rather than be a biologist, I wanted to study the chemistry of life. So mm -hmm. I went into biochemistry where I got my Ph.D. Uh, and what happened was that even, even in college as, as a young man, I began to feel there was something missing in my life. Uh, so, and I, I later realized it was some sense of spirituality which I think is very important for all people. But I found that, whatever that you want to call that, in science at first. I, I was thinking, well, you know, the science is great because it gives you a real sense of purpose, a real sense of uh, doing something good in the world, and, and it's true, you know, so mm -hmm. it's great. But there was one catch, which was that what I was learning in science didn't jive with the materialistic worldview. And I, I, I couldn't have said it that way. I just, I just felt it. For example, uh, in graduate school, I learned about the process by which proteins are made in cells. And that's a very complex process that involves a tremendous amount of uh, biomolecules interacting with each other. And the complexity is just incredible. And I remember feeling like a chill going down my spine. I, it was like, this is amazing. <laughs> Where did, how did this get here? And it was something that I couldn't answer. Uh, later, of course, like most biologists, I just came up with the answer, which is evolution. Evolution mm -hmm. does everything. <clears throat> but when I at that time, I kind of left things as it was and as, as they were, and I just uh, started wondering about really whether science was really the only way to find any truth. And I, 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 pretty soon I rejected that, as many people have. I was not 
yet ready to believe in God, and that took a lot of other steps. It required um, it required me to kind of break down my resistance to the idea, which was which I was born with, and it's it's kind of hard to you know reject all of that. But eventually, I did. And then, uh, were there any external yeah. factors that were helping to open you up? Yes, to God. Absolutely. Uh, I was brought to a church by a friend. And, and this I was, was still when you were an atheist. Oh yeah, and I was well. Maybe by then I was a little agnostic. Okay. You know, I wasn't really sure. Uh, so you got to the point of agnostic. Yeah. All on your own. Th that was all on my own, and that was due to the science I was learning. Uh -huh. Because the science I was learning did not support a strict atheism. It did not support strict materialism. Okay. And and that comes from quantum theory, and it comes from you know the observer effect and all sorts of things in physics. But it also came from what I was learning in biochemistry and about how life works. Right. It just seemed that saying evolution explains everything in life was too glib. You know, it was too easy. It, it didn't seem to me to be enough. That's interesting because I've heard a lot of scientists, even like Peter Atkins, will say that God is like a lazy explanation. And you're saying that evolution is kind of like a lazy explanation. Well, for uh, you know... At that time, I would have said God was a lazy explanation, too. I d had no idea what the explanation was. I didn't really know what God was. <laughs> I didn't understand very much about God. But, yeah, uh, I, think, I think evolution can explain a lot. Mm -hmm. But there are some key things that it cannot explain, and that includes the origin of life. And that's not my view. That's a very... Darwin said the same thing. Richard Dawkins has said the same thing. Yeah. The, the process of evolution that we call Darwinian evolution or biological evolution um, doesn't deal with the origin of life at all. So, and I'm, I'll get into that a little more, I think. Uh, but the external factors that helped me were, as I said, the, going to a church for mm -hmm. the first time and seeing something that I absolutely didn't expect. I thought that when you walked into a church, the first thing that would happen is the priest or the pastor would start yelling at you, you know, telling you that you're sinful and, you know, you're going to go to hell. And Where did you get that in impression from? Well, that's the impression I got growing up, you know, that... Uh, from who, though? Who, who did... Well, may, I mean, maybe it was a different time, but... It was, was, it, it was, was a different it? time, but it was also... It was also... By the way, it's not over yet. I mean, there, you'll still mm -hmm. find atheists talking about, you know, uh, the horrors of Christianity and how they... And how, you know, people are doing nothing but casting you into hell all the time and lakes of fire and sin and and I felt you know very nervous and uh, it was and a your experience was nothing like that no it was a Catholic church uh, run by uh, Franciscans and uh, the priest gave a sermon about love love period not you know love God but just love mm. each other love and I thought, boy, this is very mild. <laughs> you know, why? You know, I think I've been lied to. <laughs> so at that point, I looked into this a little more. Uh, I wasn't a theist yet, but I started looking at the Bible for the first time. Uh, the Old Testament left me a little cold. I couldn't really get into it. Didn't understand it much. But I read the Book of Matthew and I read the Book of Acts and. I found those very moving. The Book of Acts struck me as actual history. I didn't have any. I was sure that this was not something anyone made up. 
It just didn't fit. So that got me thinking, and, and then I, you know, I learned more and more. And as I talk about in my book, I'm not going to go into detail now, I had several experiences, including some dreams and, and a waking experience that I had to attribute to the Holy Spirit. And at that point, I, after many years, by the way, I'm, talking, mm-hmm. I'm compressing two decades <laughs> into this discussion. But at that point, I realized that Christianity is true, and Christ was real, and he lived and died and rose. And I became a Christian. Yeah, I want to focus in on one part of your story, but I also mm-hmm. want to make a kind of general comment mm-hmm. about... The f- so sometimes I see atheists say, like, okay, now it's just like this one... that That is the reason why he became a Christian, and that usually they pinpoint some, like, bad thing that happened, or, mm-hmm. you know, this, this this is a bad reason to become a, a Christian. Or right. But in, in your case, and I think in a lot of cases, probably the vast majority of cases, that it's a multiplicity of different things yes, right. that all together... You know, exactly. built up and built up over many years. You said you're compressing in a story in, t- you know, five minutes, something right. that happened to you over the course of 20 years. Right. And so obviously you're leaving things out and you can't actually get the sense of like all of these things building up and leading to this huge paradigm shift in your thinking, mm-hmm. in your worldview. Yeah. But that, that's just the point that I wanted to make is that there's a whole lot of things going on oh, yeah. in your story. Yeah. And they all work together. Like it started out you know, from atheism to agnosticism, right. based purely on the science. Mm-hmm. And then you had these other experiences, and everything kind of played together to lead you to Christ. So right. uh, that's one point I want to make. And then the second point was to bring us back to uh, focus on one area that really got you considering leaving atheism. Right. And I understand, is, is it a biogenesis? That's, a biogenesis. That's one of the, the main things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell me more about that. How did that, looking into that, really bring you more toward Christianity, toward theism? Well, you know, it's interesting because abiogenesis is a very active field of research, and people are looking at it uh, very intensely in various ways. I've done a little bit myself. but uh, Have you published? Yes, I have okay. one paper published and one that's just about to be appro- approved, uh, both on the same subject, which is, uh, which I'll get to in a second. But as I mentioned, abiogenesis, nobody thinks that it has anything to do with, you know, standard evolution. The, the general idea among scientists, anyway, and, and the atheist ideas who are not scientists are not worth discussing, but the, the general scientific idea is that life began through what's called chemical evolution. And chemical evolution is very different from biological evolution because there's no natural selection. And there's no replication. There's no mutations. Yeah. Chemical chemical evolution is when you take chemicals, you put them together, and they either react or they somehow are able to do things only on the basis of chemistry Mm -hmm. without any mutation, without any replication, and without any natural selection. And that's pretty hard to do. Uh, Jim Tour, who's in this neighborhood, yep. uh, has often said uh, quite strongly and correctly that people who say that we're almost, we've solved so many problems in abiogenesis, we're almost there, are just wrong. <laughs> he says it a little more strongly than I do. <laughs> I was but, listening to something with him the other day. But he, he's, he's correct. So, 
he's, he's so forceful. Yeah, he's forceful, and but he's right. And I know why he's he, he gets frustrated sometimes because he is a chemist, a very mm -hmm. good chemist, and he knows more than anyone that that's not how chemistry works. <laughs> chemistry, you know, uh, doesn't do things. Uh, for any reason by life does things because of natural selection perhaps or because of you know the way life works and you can get evolution but you can't get it started and I started thinking about this years ago uh, especially related to one of my interests which is you know how how the DNA works by coding the existence of proteins which cause life and you know, uh, Stephen Meyer has written about this in Signature of the Cell, and he has, he, in his recent book, The Return of the God Hypothesis, he talks a little bit about it as well. But I was focusing on one specific aspect which is uh, critical to the origin of life, to the origin of evolution, and that is the accuracy of self-replication, because nothing in the universe self-replicates accurately other than living cells. No chemical self-replicates. No machine self-replicates. Crystals don't self-replicate. Even DNA doesn't self-replicate. But a living cell can, self, can make copies of itself that are 99.9999% accurate. That's astonishing. How does that happen? It involves a tremendous number of really complex things, including the genetic code, including ribosomes and DNA, uh, DNA replication and protein synthesis, uh, things that are just too complicated to describe without slides. Hmm. Uh, or without a, a semester of... Or without a semester of, bi of biology, yeah, or chemistry or whatever. So if you, if you, if you have to have self-replication in order to have evolution, how, how, do you get, how do you get all this? How did that self-replication get there? Yeah. It couldn't have evolved because there's no evolution. And that's what I've been studying and what I published on recently. Uh, the fact that, in fact, as I assumed, uh, using various models or I'm not going to get into, that there are thresholds. And if you don't start out with a cell that already is pretty good at accurate self-replication, you can't do it. You'll never get living cells, and you'll never get evolution going. And as I say, that's been oh. published in a theoretical journal. Okay. So you've got to get the cell first in order to get it up and going get and, get, and get any right. evolution. Right. But then to get to that point, to get to the first cell, you need just too many things? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, you need, you need too many things that are too difficult to explain through only chemical evolution. Hmm. So what? The, what the, is the current like science science uh, consensus? Is that mm -hmm. what's the current scientific consensus about abiogenesis? It depends who you talk to. If you talk to people who are not working in the field, many of them will say, "Oh yeah, we're getting there. We've got a lot made a lot of progress. We know that amino acids, you know, were in meteors, so they probably you know developed uh, or formed in the primeval earth. We know that uh, nucleotides can make long polymers with RNA." That, that, yeah, that's all true, but the people who are actually the, the leaders in these fields, in this field, uh, know the details, and the details are exactly what Jim Tour says. It doesn't happen. You don't get long polymers. You get short polymers. 
you don't get self-replication, you get annealing, you get junk rather than good stuff. Uh, that's what they know. And frankly, uh, I think many of them are getting discouraged. Uh, it looks like uh, not a lot of progress has been made. Mm -hmm. In fact, very little. And the numbers of problems just keep expanding. So, uh, so the the alternative that mm -hmm. you arrived at was what? Well, so I don't know. I didn't know uh, what I what I I thought there was there's something missing, and this was the how this affected my journey to faith was that it it broke it helped break down this absolute certainty that everything is explainable by materialistic science. Okay. But I didn't know what the answer was. Right. <laughs> Once I became a believer and I started thinking, well, God is the creator of the universe, but I also said not just the universe, he's also the creator of life and the creator of human beings, all of which are not explainable by any other means. So, but how? See, that's my question. Because knowing that God did something to me is not enough. I want to know a little more details. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I can. I don't know if anyone can ever learn that or understand that because we don't know how God works, you know, obviously. But I want to keep looking at it, and I want to keep, you know, investigating various hypotheses. I don't think we should stop doing scientific research on the issue, but I think we need to be open and. It may be that biology is at the same place that physics was before Einstein came up with relativity. They were kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. They had solved everything except this nasty thing called light, which nobody could understand. And when Einstein solved light through relativity, it changed physics forever. And it, it, it turned out physics was nowhere near complete. And now we're in a position where you know we have a huge amount of more knowledge which makes the physical picture of the universe totally different than we originally thought. And I think biology is in exactly the same place right now. We need to expand our tools. We need to include new concepts into our studies of biology. And I'm not only the only one saying this, there are even some non-theists who are saying this. And uh, one of those concepts may be teleology, purpose. Perhaps we need to put purpose back into scientific equations, which has been taken out of ever since Darwin. The whole idea of evolution is it's blind, right? The blind watchmaker. It has no direction, no purpose. Well, the direction we know is wrong. Simon Conway Morris has shown that uh, there is a direction in evolution uh, through, through you know, his amazing studies on the Burgess Shale and other things. He's he has shown that there are constraints. Evolution doesn't do just anything. It does only certain things, and it does it over and over and over again. So there's a direction. There, there are laws that seem to govern what actually can happen. It's not all random chance. We need to find out what those laws are, and we need to find out what they're about. And here's where I think philosophy becomes very important. Because scientists are not good at figuring out what, <laughs> what you know, is the basis of science. Once they make a discovery and they find a law, fine, they can then write an equation and have it as a law. But oftentimes, it 
it takes some thought and some new approaches. I mean, Einstein had to use a whole different mathematical approach to get where he got. I think we're going to need to do the same thing. And I think that what we will find is that those new approaches, including something like teleology, are going to point even more than they do now to a divine being, a divine designer. So I want to kind of get an overview of your your journey. So you encountered these different things in science, and uh, let's just get a, a quick summary of those. So a biogenesis, quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. was there anything else that really stuck out? Well, the fine-tuning argument. Fine-tuning argument, okay. Really, uh, I, I learned about that later, but yes, that was definitely another So those piece. were some of the, was there anything else scientifically that well, there's actually a lot of other things. That, that some of them are not very well known, but uh, just the idea that there's a lot in physics that is not known and is very surprising. And physicists themselves, some of them, are getting a little nervous because it looks like the CERN, for example, the CERN uh, collider has not given the results that people are hoping for. A lot of theories have been thrown out. I can't go into details because mm -hmm. I'm not a physicist and, uh, you know... Uh, this is just from what I'm reading. So, and, and there are other parts of biology that uh, are incredibly suggestive of something way beyond anything we can understand, including consciousness, including human behavior. I mean, the idea that evolution, you know, Darwinian evolution by natural selection explains why you know we are we have morality, or explains why we're creative or we love music. That's just nonsense. That's not even scientific. Hmm. Those are stories, okay? Uh, so what makes us human? What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, we, we have a sense, right? Everybody has a sense that human beings are not just animals who are smart. Uh, some people deny that, and I have never, even as an atheist, I never went along with that view. I always knew that human beings were somehow special, very special. I didn't know why, I didn't know where it came from, but now I think I do. So then that, that was kind of a summary of the, the science that kind of led you toward theism. But then what about, what was like, I know you mentioned like there were several different experiences that you had at church and dreams and everything. What was one that really stuck out to you that really contributed to your eventual accepting Christianity as true? Well, I can, <clears throat> as uh, I, can t I can tell you about uh, one of the dreams, which there were two main ones that I believe involved intercession from the Spirit. Were you, at this time, were you, like, really investigating? Okay. Were you reading Scripture a lot? Were no, you praying the, the at all? No, the first one, uh, I wasn't even thinking about Christianity or belief. I was an agnostic. I didn't know what was going on. Okay. And I didn't understand the dream at all when I had it. And it was a very frightening dream because I, I don't like heights. <laughs> and I was hanging from the edge of a cliff, uh, terrified. I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't climb up. I was holding on with my hands. And I screamed out, help, help. I didn't know who I was calling to. I just said, help, help. And I heard a voice say, just let go. And I said, what? What? I fall down. And the voice said, just let go. So I finally said, well, okay. So I, I let go. 
And the moment I let go, the entire landscape turned 90 degrees. And instead of hanging from a cliff, I was lying on the ground. And there was a man whose voice, voice I had heard standing there. That was the man who said, just let go. I woke up and I was like, whoa, <laughs> what was that? I didn't know what he meant by just let go. I didn't know who it was. And then eventually, of course, um, I found out that, of course, the man was Jesus Christ, and what I had to let go of was all the baggage that was in my life that was preventing me, absolutely blocking me from even considering the idea of a God. And I, eventually I did let go of all of that. Wow. That's crazy. Was there another one? You, you mentioned... The other one, one that was, was later, later, and the other one... <laughs> the other one was I was already thinking about maybe believing in something. Uh, I don't remember exactly where I was, but I, what I do know is I had never been to a church yet, uh, other than that one Catholic church. I might have been there already, but I had never... What were they wearing, the Franciscans? Was it, were they like oh, brown robes? robes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that freaked me out a little Wasn't bit. Wasn't that cool, though? It was kind it of was cool. cool. It was cool. They were very cool people. They were really <laughs> nice. Uh, like yeah. the little rope? Yeah, little rope, yeah. <laughs> I thought that was weird. Did they, did they like, shave their heads? I anything? don't remember that. They, they might have. Yeah, I don't remember. Catholics, but, man. Catholics. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, that's uh, another story. Yeah, so tell me, tell me about the experience. So, so I had, and I had <laughs> not read, I had not yet read the gospel. That's definite. Uh, so I had a dream that I was walking around the garden trying to get in, a walled garden. And I couldn't get in. I, I, it was very steep walls, and I was kept trying to climb up. And I, mm. I found vines and little things, that, but I couldn't get to the top. And I got really frustrated, and I kept going around. And, I, and, and then I saw a man, and, and he said, what's the matter with you? And I said, I, I want to get in, and I can't climb over. He said, well, then use the door. There it is. So I walked in, opened the door, and walked in. And there was the garden. And <laughs> later, when I was in church, I, I think the first time I went to the church I'm now a member of, there was a picture of Jesus knocking on the door. But I had never heard that knock on the door, and it, you know, if you knock, it will be open for you. That was, mm -hmm. I had yet to re read that, but I dreamed it. So that that had a big effect on me, as wow. you can see. <laughs> yeah, I'm like about to start tearing up myself. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a, there's a whole lot more for us to to cover in this short interview, but is, yeah, is there is there anything that you'd like to leave with the audience before we close it out? Yeah, I, I think I have one main message. I think I I think I was called, as so many of us are called, to give one message to people who are questioning their faith, especially if they're questioning it because of science. <clears throat> and that's the reason I wrote my book. It's the reason I'm writing, <clears throat> excuse me, articles. Science and Christian faith are absolutely not in conflict. I understand that people growing up in faith occasionally <clears throat> will, uh, will lose it for various reasons, 
But one of those reasons should never be science, okay? Because science is not anti-Christian. Science is not atheistic. Christianity uh, was instrumental in the foundation of science, in the beginning of science. All the original scientists were, were uh, Christians, and that remains. There are still many, many scientists who are Christians, despite the current atmosphere, which is somewhat hostile to Christianity. But uh, my prediction is what I see now happening is that atheists are beginning to deny the reality of science. You find atheists saying, no, no, the universe didn't have a beginning. It's been there forever. No. They say the DNA is not a code. There's no genetic code. It's not a real code. Wrong. And the reason these are not scientists necessarily, but they're atheists who think they, they are seeing this from various people, and the reason they're attacking scientific facts, because they are, is because the scientific facts are pointing more and more to what they don't want to accept, which is that this world has a creator. And everything we see is, a, is part of the creation, including ourselves. So if you are being told that you have to choose between science and your Christian faith, reject that. Whoever told you that is wrong. It's not true. What's true is Christianity. Reach out for Reach him. Out. 
you go from this one world into the new world. Anyway, he's here with us this morning. Would you please welcome back Hagen Faraj. Good morning. Good morning. Are you all awake? I've had my coffee. I've had one church service. Oh, I'm good to go. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Uh, this is the wrong one. Okay. All right, let's go here. It's the next request while I look at it. Chemistry-wise, man, we were hit. We could laugh and talk all day, but they had no character. So I could not fellowship. 
because filthy communications corrupt good manners. Then you want to be able to uh, hang on, hang out with people that, uh, of which you can you can conversate with. Amen. Competence. You, that, that, they need to be on your level. Competence. You're speaking one language, they're speaking another. It makes it, makes it very difficult. You follow what I'm saying? We're trying to establish character, competence, and chemistry with the world. When the Bible teaches that that is not possible. Mm -mm. Even Jesus, when he prayed for us in John's Gospel, chapter number 17, he says, I pray for them, speaking of the saints. I pray not for the world, but I pray for them that are in the world that thou gavest me. That you will keep them from the world. And see, part of the problem is we're trying to build bridges with people that God said were to come out from among. That, that's the problem. See, y'all don't like that. The question is, who's on the Lord's side? 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, verse 3, says this. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, that the man of sin be revealed. Falling away. Ephistema is the uh, Greek word. Ephistema. Ephistema. A-P-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. Comes from alpo, which means from, and histema, to place or to stand. It means to place oneself away from or to stand away from someone. The falling away. To place yourself or to stand away from someone or something. Thing. That's the word Paul used to describe uh, what would take place in the last day. That will be that will come a falling away. Um, and, and and the interesting thing is this, and I, I need you to hear this with, with your spiritual ears. This departing from someone does not necessarily imply wholehearted agreement or disagreement. Won't you let that sink in? It does not imply wholehearted agreement or disagreement, but it is separating oneself for the purpose of not incurring the dangers of that association. Put it in layman's terms. It doesn't mean that people will all together leave the church. It doesn't mean that people will stop attending the convocation or the workers' meeting. It doesn't mean that people won't hold national offices. People won't be bishops. It doesn't mean that the churches will empty. But here's what it does mean. It means when areas of holiness brings danger, 
or persecution or trial, then you separate yourself from that part. And you're still claiming to be saved. Still got your chain. Still have your title. You're still in the church. But you ain't going to touch this. Because if I touch this, then persecution will come my way. Because they're telling me that I can't touch this. Even though the this is wrong. I'm not leaving altogether. I'm going to still pay my reports. I'm going to still show up and I'll keep my position. And I'm still in the body of Christ. But as far as this thing, I may suffer. I may get ostracized. I may get criticized. So I'm not going to bother that. You are part of the falling away. Oh, the falling away doesn't imply that people will leave the church and become agnostics or atheists. Or you'll become... Oh my, you go Muslim or Buddhist or join Beyonce's religion. But it means that from within the church, you stay away from any subject that might bring fire on. Sometimes you might even admire those who will step in the fire. But you wouldn't do it yourself for nothing in this world. I'm also so proud of you online. I'm so proud. But what have you posted? That's, that's the thing. Oh, oh, he's so brave. And all that courage, where's yours? Because there ain't but one Holy Ghost. And everybody who gets filled with the Holy Ghost gets filled with the same Holy Ghost. And in the book of Acts, when they got refilled, the Bible teaches that all of them spoke the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter number 4. All of them. After they persecuted Peter and John, threatened them not to preach in Jesus' name, Peter and John went back to their own company, told them what happened. The people prayed. The place was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And all of them began to speak the word of God with boldness. Not just one or two, but all of them. Somebody ain't got the Holy Ghost. Oh. Amen. <sighs> Second Thessalonians chapter number 2 and verse 3 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in a latter time some would depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. Depart there. Uh, the word is to stand aloof. Aloof, that is, 
You put distance between you and the faith. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of them Bishop Wooden kind of Christians. I'm a Christian, but I ain't all that upper room stuff. I ain't for that. No, child, I'm born again, but I know how far to go with it. How far back? I just find these things to be quite interesting. I know how far to go with it. That tells me there that you don't have it. Because you're controlling it. When once you get saved, it's supposed to control you. Amen. Am I right? If you're born again, then you read the Bible, and whichever way uh, the Bible says through prayer and studying the scriptures and learning the doctrine, God gets in the driver's seat. And that's the problem. God's not driving. Folks ride down the road, they got a little sign on their car saying, The Lord is my co pilot. That's the problem. That's the problem. Might want to make him the pilot. All right, Amen. Amen. <laughs> I'm going to preach to you in just a minute. This is what we're seeing. We are, and I don't know why, maybe for advantage, fame, position, acceptance, inclusion, I don't know, for praise, for relevance. We're seeing people begin to stand further and further away from biblical Christianity. Amen. And anytime you see Christians bemoaning the overturning of Roe v. Wade, anytime you see Christians who who will tell you, well, I have no problem with LBGTQ+, all that kind of stuff. That's falling away. That's falling away. That's falling away. And, and this is what we've seen uh, as we've watched uh, believers uh, online and elsewhere defend Beyonce. Now, let me say this to you about Beyonce. Beyonce is for whom Christ died. Jesus loves her just as much as Jesus loves you and me. I think she's a strikingly beautiful woman. Can sing like a storm, highly talented. But that ain't what I'm talking about. This ain't no beauty contest. We're talking about soul. We're talking about right. We're talking about wrong. You know, um, some guy said, you know, uh, you know well, where did you get the idea that uh, she sold her soul to the devil? Well, her. Now, I... I could be wrong, but if you want to know where I got the idea, I got it from her. She's the one talking about performing and, and doing things, and she's summoning someone from the dead. And Shasha, uh, this, this thing takes over her. Sasha Fierce takes over. She said that. I didn't say it. She's the one who talks about levitating. Do you know how, you, how much power you got to have with Satan to levitate? Where did I get it from? I got it from her. 
There are a multitude of other things. I hope she has it. But, but I tell you what, there are things that she said. So I'm taking my time because I don't. I, when they play it or whatever, I, I don't. I don't want to leave room for misspoke. And I don't want to leave room for you say for for you know, for, me, for me to misspeak, and I don't want you to mishear. Now, for those believers out there, I'm not going to judge anybody's heart, but for those believers out there who defend her, she wrote in her poem, Denial. She wrote this. Now, Denial is a poem that was written. She's trying to find out whether or not her lover, husband, whomever, I don't know, is cheating on And she said, but still inside me, coiled deep, was the need to know, are you cheating? Are you cheating on me? So, and I guess, the, I guess it was denied. So, hence the name of the poem, Denial. All right? She said this in the poem. I crossed myself in thought. I saw the devil. I grew thickened skin on my feet. I bathed in bleach and plugged my menses, menses, monthly with the pages of the holy book. Now you you Christians out there who can defend someone who have said this, defend on. But I don't believe a regular woman she don't have to be saved. I just don't believe a regular woman, uh, something like that would even cross your mind to do with the Bible. No regular, she ain't got to be no church mother. You don't have to be saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost. Don't have to be a missionary. You don't need to be capped. Amen. You don't need to be a prophetess or anything like that. Just regular. I don't believe that a ordinary woman void of the Holy Spirit. She got to be spirit filled. Just got her spirit. A regular person, regular woman would use the pages of the scripture for a tampon. Oh. Now y'all say leave her alone. Do you leave that alone? I don't know how a regular person 
could even imagine such. See, that's that demon stuff. Exodus, you know, that's demons. That's, that's highly, that's uh, only demons talk like that. You got to have the, de- the devil in you. These were her words, not mine. Now, when you all uh, have a fit on this, have a fit on her. She's the one who said it. And in and in this poem, uh, she acknowledges. She calls it the holy book. I'll tell you what I'm waiting for. That ain't going that will never happen. Write that about the Quran. Yeah. Say say that. Say that. It's not gonna happen. You know why it's not gonna happen? Because in Islam they got something that we don't seem to have in Christianity. They got men. We got people with backbone who won't take something like that lying, lying down. They'll say something. I guarantee you, you would never get a Muslim online to defend such. But Christians, oh, us, we saved, sanctified, and fear with the Holy Ghost. See, like to me, those words don't mean what they used to. We, we, we just take anything. Do you not know that the disabled community is stronger than the Church of God in Christ? The disabled community is stronger than the modern-day Christian. See, because, uh, now this happened two weeks ago. Beyonce's representative have confirmed the S word will be removed from heated. Earlier today, 1st of August, disability activists publicly called the singer out for using the S word. She said spaz at the end of a track. Heated is the 11th song from Beyonce's seventh solo album, Renaissance. She raps the lyrics spazzing on the on that uh, behind. Spaz that. which some fans pointed out was derogatory towards disabled people. Particularly the word used to apply, particularly as the word as the word used to apply to people with cerebral palsy. A member of her, of her team says the word not intentionally used in a harmful way will be replaced. The disabled community. The disabled community. 
But the church, the church, all online, I'm getting instructed from sisters, praise the Lord, all these, all these people, see, y'all mess with the wrong preacher. I'm already dead. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. I don't desire your, your approval, your friendship, your camaraderie, anything. I'm serving to him. Say one day, well done. Thy good and faithful servant. Now, apart from that, I hope you get saved. Then we can, you know, we have something in common. You need to, need to get saved, but if you don't, you're going to hell. Um, so, uh, I know y'all don't like this. So, now, now, now here, here it is. The disabled people spoke with one voice. Now, will you tell me why the church is divided on this? Uh, Rocket, get the praise team ready. Get them ready. Get them ready, Rocket. Uh, what you're getting them ready for, I'll tell you in a minute. How do Christians support such? And then even in her song, uh, Supervisor Desiree, Desiree uh, you know, I got to be careful how I call people's names. I guess they heard me call Sister uh, Parker. Uh, name and she's such an awesome woman of God and she has a beautiful song now more than enough and I guess somebody heard me call her name and you know what they said they said oh she done had two babies out of wedlock herself I guess now I, I didn't know that and she didn't either and her husband didn't either because it didn't happen. Okay. But see, these people don't have to have truth. They'll just tell a lie. See, because they are trying to get hits. You know, build an audience. Uh, they don't care uh, who the person is or what they say. But in her song, Bow Down, she says this. I know when you were little girls, you dreamt of being in my world. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Respect that. Bow down is witch, but it starts with a B. I took some time to live my life. Don't think that I'm just his little wife. Don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. This is my SHI. Bow down. Yeah, I'm, re I'm reading her lyrics. Bow down, bees, bow down, bees, bow down, bees, bow down. Now this is the artist that believers are siding with some believers. I said some. That are siding with against the preacher for telling the truth. Now, some of you aren't surprised by these lyrics because you downloaded this song a long time ago. You probably listened to it on your way to church. That's probably your Sunday morning hymn. 
Get in the mirror, try that. You're going to throw your back out trying to shake like that woman. But who could defend such? Who could defend such? She needs prayer. Jesus loves her. Jesus died for her. God loves her. But she needs to be born again. And she's wrong. And then of all groups, why jump on the church? See, why wouldn't say that? Now, I, the people who question me, I wonder why didn't they say, why did Beyonce say that? The question don't start with me. No, it don't start with me. I'm responding to what was said. Had it been named World Girls, Club Girls, Track Girls, Party Girls, I would have never known it was me. But when they said Church Girls, because I'm in the church. I'm in the church. And I love the church girls. Now what are you saying about church girls? See, see, she, she did that. All these people, look, none of y'all, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter to me. She did that. So, so church, church girl, you're going to jump on the church girls. Now, I just so happen to have the lyrics. And so I'm not going to read the whole thing because I got to finish this sermon. But, you know, People want people want to know, and see part of the problem. Do y'all want to know what part of the problem that the world had with that that clip that they put out there? It wasn't just what I said; it was your reaction. They were stunned to hear all them sanctified folks cheering me on, saying "Amen." So that's 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 what they, that's that's the problem. No, I'm not. I'm not just some guy taking a walk. Oh no, there are followers who believe the same way I believe because we're on the Lord's side. That's the problem. Oh yeah, it wasn't just me, but y'all jumped in it and, and you said amen. Thank you. Now, now, jump on church girl. And if you if you've been complimenting church girls, that would have been fine. But if you're gonna call church girls thoughts, that hole over there, calling church girls holes. I imagine that there are some holes in the church, but there ain't enough of them for all the church girls to be called holes. And we don't need anybody trying to glorify it and sing about it and market it to our girls. No problems as it is. We don't need her help destroying the church. I don't know why all bishops aren't speaking up. I don't know why all pastors aren't speaking up. And I'm not talking about something that, you know, people can loosely interpret as being, you know... You know, you, you, you speak, but you speak from a safe place. No, Jesus said, launch out into the deep. The Bible says, cry loud and spare 
now. Preachers, bishops, supervisors, uh, uh, district missionaries, mothers, fathers, all who name the name of Christ. Now, listen to this, and then I got to move on. Oh, my church girls, church girls. Oh, 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 oh. I've been up, I've been down, feel like I've moved mountains. Got friends that cried fountains. Oh, I'm warning everybody, as soon as I get to this party, I'm going to let go of this body. I'm going to love me. Nobody can judge me. I was born free. Drop it like a thotty. Drop it like a thotty. Drop it like that hole over there. So that ain't the way to praise God. That's not a church move. That's not a church move. That's not, that's, that's not a worship posture. I said, now pop it like a thotty, pop it like a thotty, you bad. Me say, now drop it like a thotty, drop it like a thotty, you bad. Church girls acting loose, bad girls acting snotty, you bad. Let go, let it go, girl. Let it go, let it go, girl, let it go. So she's talking to the girls. Talk to the church girls. This ain't a church mother talking to the church girl. It's not a missionary talking to the church girl. It's not a prophetess talking to the church girls. It's not a mother. Well, she's a mother. But it's not a church mother talking to the church girls. And you mothers who have daughters, do you want somebody to tell your daughter to act like a thotty? You want, do you want your daughter to act like a hoe? Is that, is that the message? And can black folks can we afford messages like this? <sighs> Twerk that behind. Twerk that donkey like it came out the south. <laughs> Girl. I said, drop it like a thotty, drop it like a thotty. Bad girls being naughty. Church girls don't hurt nobody. Oh, yeah. This, now, this is what the saints online is defending. This, this is, you can be my daddy if you want to. You can be my daddy if you want to. You can, you can get it tatted if you want to. You can get it tatted if you want to. She ain't trying to hurt nobody. Put your lighters to the sky and get this mother lit. Yeah. Church, I'm reading the song entitled Church Girl. She gonna shake that donkey and them pretty tiggle bitties, big old titties. So she's going to shake that rump and them big titties. This, this is what's being said to the church girl. Now, now look, don't try to act bashful. Because some of you are sitting there saying, why is he reading it? We know the words. Ooh. 
And see, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. <laughs> part of the problem. Amen. And uh, I can imagine what they're saying online. I don't care what you say. Just keep watching. I'm right. And these aren't my words. I didn't write this. Uh, so get your racks up. Word. Get your math up. Word. Huh? I'm going to back it up. Back it up. Back it up. Back it up. I'm a bust it. I'm a bust it. I'm a bust it. I'm a bust it. Back it up. Oh, she, that's, that's, that's when you back your behind up. You're exposing it, your vagina, and everything else while you dance. The name of this song is Church Girl. Uh, church Girl. Bust it sometimes. That means bust it open. It can be used to refer to having sex or twerking, dancing, or showing your private parts, ladies. Hey, you want to go teach this in children's church? Since the name of the church, girl, don't you think we ought to teach our little babies this? Oh, my. Don't you think you ought, don't you want your grandchildren to learn this? After all, the person who sang this to the church girls is 40 years old. And married. Thank you. With children. So what you going to say to your children when they Mom, why will you write this at 40? We could understand 15. Wouldn't have been right. We could understand 20. But, you know, most times first get 40. I mean, you know, you come to age. By the time you get 40, you have to keep your hair colored. Things changing. They changing. Is to expect a degree of maturity. And at 40, I'm a bust it. Yeah. I see them gray sheets. I see a blank check. I see them gray sheets. Yeah, I can see you're aroused. Talking to the man. But you can be aroused all you want to, but you better show me that check. Because you ain't getting none of this without a change. Got to pay. This is part of church girls. I'm finally on the other side. I finally found the urge to smile. Swimming through the oceans of tears we cried. Tears we've cried. You know you. Here's what she said just to the person. Because you know she says I'm on the other side. And the lyric says, tears we cried, tears we've cried. Then the next line is singular. You know you got to go to church in the morning. She ain't going. You got to go to church in the morning. But you're doing God's work. You're going in. You're you, you with me tonight, but you got to go to church in the morning. She ain't trying to hurt nobody. She is trying to do the best she can, happy on her own with her friends without a man. 
So this is the gist of this song. So she got a sugar daddy. Maybe maybe the man's a pastor. I don't know. He's got to go to church. She ain't going to church. Nobody can judge me. I was born free. Drop it like a thotty. Drop it like a thotty. I said pop it like a thotty. Ain't that something? And then she told him, how you like this, guys? It must be the cash because it ain't your face. She sure told him. <laughs> it must be the cash because it ain't your face. Now, do it, baby. Stick it in, baby. Do it, baby. Stick it, baby. Yeah. In other words, if you got the money, I got the time. Now, the title to what I just read to you is Church Girl. Now, defend that. Defend this online. Now, she got this song. The, the, the song, the introduction of it, you know, she got the song uh, in your will. Am I and is that the name of it? Center thy will is that's the part that Twinkie Clock does. And if you listen to the song, which I don't recommend, the song is playing Twinkies underneath what she is saying. So you you talking about peeing on somebody? And saying it's raining. And deprecating on someone. And calling it peanut butter. Oh. And hoping that people are too dumb to know the difference. Well, we're not. Now. Now. Just two minutes. This is. This is. The song. This is the clock sister song. This, look how beautiful. Look how beautiful. Now, listen to this, and then you tell me how her song, Church Girls, came out of this. Majestic, it moves you, it ushers you into the presence of God. How in the world did you get this out of that? And how do believers defend this? And, and, uh, and, and this is what's the undercurrent that's being played, which 
it's to call the, the song that Sister Twinkie wrote, to call it beautiful is an understatement. It's more than that. And it ushers you into the will of God. And it, it, every time you hear it, it reminds you of just wanting to pray and wanting to uh, serve the Lord and, and be in his holy will. But yet, this is what was done to it. I pray to God that everybody who has a voice denounce this. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. And I don't know if her intentions were uh, were not spoken. I don't know if she fooled them or whatever the case may be. But if you go out and you get the song and you play Twinkie's song. See, Twinkie, Twinkie Clark, Twinkie Clark helped keep me saved. See, uh, I'm not in, I don't have a battle with them. Presiding Bishop J. Drew Shear is my bishop. He's the leader of this church. Twinkie's so awesome that she don't even need a last name. She's up there with Jordan. Praise the Lord and some of the others. Brady, uh, I guess you all, I guess you all say Beyonce. <laughs> you don't need a last name either. Um, but it's a beautiful song. Only a twisted, demented mind can hear that and write this. That's demonic. Bible said, giving who to, heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils and everybody who sides with this, you got the devil in you too. You need to check yourself. You can't just do anything. You can't just do anything. So here we are. Here we are. Asking the question that Moses asked. Who is on not my side? I have no side. All right. I ain't got no side. I didn't write the Bible. Matter of fact, I'm not even trying to be on my side. I'm striving to be on the Lord's side. So I want to know from you. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Praise the Lord. So now, out the text, the context of our text is that Israel made God a promise and they quickly forgot it. It almost reminded me of, of the church world and COVID. Now, all while COVID was on and killing everybody, we can't have church like we used to have church. We can't do like we used to do. Can't go back to church as usual. Can't go back. What are we doing? What are we doing? This thing is showing that all this, this, this argument online is showing that we learned nothing. 
Nothing from the pandemic. Nothing from all of the deaths. You, you sanctified and you, you're defending this. You learned nothing. Some of these people were born without a brain. You learned nothing. And Israel all quickly forgot. In Exodus chapter 19, Oh, I got to go fast now. Let me go fast because I got to come back tonight. We got some fantastic ladies preaching their initial sermon. And, uh, and uh, Exodus 19 and 8 says, And all the people answered and said, All that the Lord have spoken unto Moses, all that the Lord have spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people to the Lord. Moses was on Mount Sinai. And uh, I was going to show you, but since my time's running out, and God came down on the mountain, and, uh, well, you can let him see the first slide. And God came down on the mountain, and uh, it was the most powerful thing, and God, that, that's Mount Sinai. Look at it. Praise the Lord. Put it in the middle so I can see it like we saw it at the 8 o'clock. I want to see how big it is. See, isn't that beautiful? Look at that. Now, Mount Sinai, the top of that mountain is dark like that today. You know why? That's the mountain that God came down on. That's the mountain that Moses was called up in. As a matter of fact, the people who discovered Mount Sinai heard me preaching about Mount Sinai and sent me video footage and different things of their, their making that discovery. And they said they were glad because, you know, there was a dispute as to where the actual Mount Sinai location was. Some put it on the Sinai Peninsula, which is not where that actual one was. It's over, it's Saudi Arabia. And it was fenced off. And to this day, where the glory of God came down upon that mountain, the top of that mountain is dark today. And that's the only mountain on earth like that. What a mighty God. And, and he called Moses up into the mountain. And, and when God spoke to Moses, uh, the people said, uh, um, uh, to, to tell God that whatever he say, we will do. So now we find in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, a weak leader, unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we watch, that is, we know not what has become of him, which is not the truth, because they know where Moses was. Because according to chapter 24 and verse 14, God called Moses back up into the mountain. And Moses was going to be there for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. God was dealing with him, giving him the law, giving him the word. And he was up there with God. And an interesting little side note is that between Exodus chapter 31 and verse 18, which says, And he gave unto Moses, and he had, 
And when he had made an end of communing with him on Mount Sinai, two tables of the testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Between that verse and chapter 32 and verse 1, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said, we don't know where Moses is. 24 hours passed between num uh, Exodus 31 and 18 and Exodus 32 and 1. Had they just waited one more day. One more day. Moses would have been back. That's just like the devil. He'll tell you that your time is up. He'll give you a false sense of urgency. He'll tell you you've been waiting on the Lord and nothing is going to happen. Don't you listen to him. Don't listen to him. Many times you're just one day away from what God has for you. And many times, you know what we do? We behave unseemly and then we reset the clock. Got to start all back over again. One day away. They go to Aaron and say, we don't know where Moses is. And then notice how carnal they got in those 40 days. It was no longer God who brought them out of Egypt, but Moses who brought them out of Egypt. See, don't you let anybody rob you of, of, of seeing the Lord in your life and seeing the hand of God in your life. The devil want to secularize you and just get God out. Don't let him do it because the devil is a liar. Are you praying for me? And they went to, they went to Aaron and they said to him, break off the golden earrings, which we, look at this, which are in our ears, in the ears of our wives and, and your sons. Aaron said to them, brother, break off the golden earrings that you, your wives have, your sons and your daughters. See that, Bishop? The boys wore your rings too. That's because they were all slaves. They had been in, in, in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. Black folk think that, that we were in slavery for 400 years. We weren't. That's Egyptian slavery lasted 400 years. So you know we've been in, <laughs> slave for 400 years. We have not. We weren't in slave. We weren't in slavery for 200 years in this country. And nationwide, uh, it was never nationwide. The slavery was in the South. Now, the country had problems. I'm not saying it didn't, but it was in the South. Learn your history. You know we were slaves. You've never been a slave. You've never been a slave, and you ain't never met anyone who was a slave. Well, I read about it. Yeah, well, you read about a lot of things, but you've never been one. And you ought to thank God. Say, well, I, I still want my reparation. Someone asked me one day. Says, look, I'm going off now, making more enemies. Somebody said to me, uh, uh, if they if they uh, give reparations, uh, would you want want reparations? I told them no. They said, why? I gave the only answer I knew, because I've never been a slave. Yeah, but, but. I said, my mama wasn't one. Her mother was. 
See, we, we start going back. So we were slaves. When were you a slave? Now you might be a slave to that fried chicken you eat every day. You might be a slave to that liquor you drink all the time. You might be a slave to those drugs you put in your body. You might be a slave because you wouldn't go to school and learn. Now that might put you in slavery. This is heavy preaching, ain't it? Heavy, 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 heavy. Say, oh, he's crazy. But I'm right. If you've been a slave, raise your hand. Amen. No, sir. So let me get back to this. So they had the earrings. Rocket, don't go far. We got to go because the saints are getting tired. They had the earrings, and uh, they took them all out there. ears. And while I'm at it, I, I do thank the Lord. I don't want to offend anybody. And this ain't no, this is just me. This, this ain't nothing. This is nothing. This is just my boast. It's just, can I make my boast? And, and I don't, you know, praise the Lord. I, I don't make this boast often. But I praise the Lord. And on this big head, flanked by two big ears, they've never been pierced. And they never will. Not for those who have, and the Lord brought you out. Thank God he brought you out. But you know, I just like to boast on my never. Now, I know that's the coldest reception I got today because I'm sitting in a church full of ex-ear pierced. <laughs> now, don't you go get no glue and try to close that hole up. You're all right. You're all right. You're all right with God. Maybe I shouldn't have even said not a major man. Now, you to, you're sitting there with your hand on your ear. No, no, no. Don't mess with that. I'm just having some fun with you. But mine ain't never been pierced. Mine ain't never When I see my grandbabies, I always ask them, my grandboys, right, let me see years. Amen. I know that ain't going to happen, but I just like to just keep it before them because things are going on. I see little boys two and three years old. I mean, what are the parents thinking about? But one, with a little earring in his head. Come on now. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, at least let him make that choice. Come on. Don't, don't do that to him already. Already, your little boy, you open him up to all kinds of spirits. In the Bible, when freedom was offered, I'm talking about the Bible now, and the and the Hebrew people refused freedom. A owl, a earring, a ring was put in their ear as a sign of voluntary bondage. It meant that you could have gone free, but you chose not to. Now, there's the history of that right there. See, sometimes we get into fads, we fall into things, and we don't even, even think. Now, what's behind this? Is anything associated with it? Before I do this, because, you know, you want to be a person who thinks independently. You don't want to do a thing just because. You want to think. It's to your advantage. Amen. Now I made all of you mad. Now you were with me when I was talking about Beyonce. Oh, my. let me go back to church, girls. <laughs> so they made this God. Come on, Rocky. And uh, then they said something that.
punched God, the God of the Bible, in the stomach. How do you know he punched God in the stomach? Because he repeated it. He repeated it. They said in verse 4, the last clause, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 8, now God is talking. God said, they have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. They gave credit for their deliverance to a calf when it was God who brought them out. They gave, they gave half of it to a calf that they had just made. And Aaron said, he said, uh, we're going to build an, an altar, verse 5. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast unto the Lord. And they rose up early that next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. Now, had they stopped right there, they would have been fine because that was the way that they worshipped Yahweh. But here's this synchronism, syncretism. Here is this bringing things into worship that don't belong. The first part of the service, they worshipped God. They offered him a burnt offering. They offered him peace offerings. But they didn't stop right there. Would have been good had a period been there. But there's a semicolon there. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. What happened here? Now we worship Yahweh, but the, 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 the phrase is, These be thy gods. You know what the word these is? B is italicized. So it literally reads, These thy God, old Israel, that brought me up out of the land of Egypt. So that is Yahweh and the bull, the calf. So we're going to worship the Lord. That's why I preach so much about trying to bring all these other things into the church. They shouldn't be in the church. It shouldn't be in the church. It should not be in the church. The church is the church. The church is, is, is set aside for the Lord. We, we look at some of these national conventions, and they're bringing all these different uh, uh, sororities and fraternities and things in a church in a church setting. No, ain't nobody God but Jehovah. Ain't nobody God but the God of the Bible. You can't bring these things and just synchronize it and expect God to be satisfied with that. Y'all don't like what I'm saying, but, uh, but I'm right. You know what they did? They didn't stop there. The people, they had a meal, and then they began to worship that calf. How did they worship the calf? Through drunken, immoral Orgies. Everybody started kissing and licking and lapping on each other. They began to take their clothes off. Unbridled rivalry. Now while they were doing this, Moses was on the mountain. And Joshua was halfway the mountain. And these people are caught up 
And this is when God says, Moses, you better get down this mountain. You got to get down because the people have quickly disobeyed me. They've quickly taken back what they said in chapter 19. They said all that the Lord would say we will do. But they've quickly turned from that. And they are participating in a uh, in debauchery. They're, they're like America is now. We've, we've, we've codified into law all kind of wicked behavior. We've, we've made same-sex marriage law. Now the government is paying women if they want to have an abortion. If you're in a state where uh, it's outlawed, we'll pay you to go to the next state. To kill your own baby. God's going to do something. God's going to do something about this stuff. It's wrong and it's ungodly. And look, at, and look at the church world. We're all divided over church girl. The devil is a liar. And we're just like they were. We're participating in things that we ought not to be participating in. And God said, get down. Get down the mountain. And Moses it says, and then the Lord made Moses an offer that I can't uh, uh, leave out because it shows the greatness of Moses. God told Moses, if you want, he says, listen, leave me alone. God told Moses in verse 10, now therefore leave me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Oh, God. You know what he was saying there? Let me kill every one of them. Let me kill every one of them. Everybody in Israel down there who's participating, let me kill them all. I guess I'll spare Joshua since he's not in there, but let me kill them all. And you know what I'll do? I'll let you become the new Abraham. I'll let you become the new father of the faithful. I'll let you be the father of the Jewish race. What an opportunity. But Moses said to God, no, Lord, don't kill him. That's a pastor for you. Don't kill him. Moses prayed on their behalf. Praise the Lord. And Moses brought, uh, besought the Lord. He's still on the mountain. Oh, God. He's besought the Lord his God and said, why dost thou Wrath waxed hot against thy people, which thou have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians, if you kill them, the Egyptians is going to say that for mischief you brought them out and slayed them in the mountains and consumed them because you weren't able to keep them. And the Bible, and then he said, please, God, verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, whom thou uh, swearest by thine own self. And you said that you would make of them a people, and you would multiply them as the stars of heaven. And because Moses prayed, God heard his prayer. And God changed, in verse 14, God changed his mind. And instead of destroying them, God said, Now go down the mountain and straighten this stuff out. 
Moses began to go down the mountain. He had the tables of stone in his hand, written by the finger of God. And when he got halfway down, he ran into Joshua. Now, you know, Joshua turned out to be a mighty warrior. Joshua was a fighter. And it seemed like to me the, the fight was in him even before Moses passed. Before he became the leader of Israel, God made him a warrior. Because notice when Joshua heard the noise, Joshua thought it was the noise of war in the camp. Joshua said, sound like somebody's fighting, which would have been better than what it was. And Moses looked at him and said, no, I don't think it's the sound of mastery. And I don't believe it's the sound, oh God, of someone crying out for weakness. Moses said, it's the sound of singing, Joshua. And they went on down the mountain. And when they got to the camp, Moses was appalled by what he saw. He saw a new God. He saw a calf. And he looked out and saw people dancing. You know what they were doing? They were busting it. That's what they were doing. They were busting it, busting it, busting it. They were shaking their booties. They were doing the church girl dance. That's what they were doing. They were jingling their breasts. They were acting like a party. Oh, yes, they were. He saw them dancing. He saw them. And Moses, he, he wasn't uh, like those people online. Moses got angry. Moses got hot. And he cast. He took the table.
meet the need in our lives today, according to your riches and glory, by your son, Christ Jesus. And Father, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. May the Lord watch between me and thee while we are absent one from another. In the name of Jesus, go today in love and peace. Share the good news of Jesus and give someone something of quality. God loves a cheerful giver. Have a blessed weekend. I, again, I speak the blessings of Almighty God upon you this weekend in Jesus' name. So at this time, I'm going to say bye-bye. Have a blessed weekend.